welcome to another week of the Eye Test for Two. I'm Clark Judge, along with Ira Kaufman, and we're both Hall of Fame voters, and at least for one hour each week, this hour, we're part-time optometrists, too, who administer Ira, what? The eye test, my friend, the eye test. You are correct, sir. And guess what? We're in good luck today. We've got some help. We've got former NFL officiating guru, Mike Pereira, who's now the NFL rules analyst for Fox TV with us. And Ira, he's going to help us understand, or well, maybe help you understand exactly what is pass interference. We, uh, our show's not long enough for that, Judge. We, we need more time. <laughs> we don't have it. We're on the clock. But first, before we get to Mike Pereira, Ira, I want you to take a listen to this. A lot of weird stuff going on this week, and rightly so, because it's Halloween week. There's some strange stuff going on around the league, like in the NFC West. Last place team, Ira, four and three. In the NFC East, the first place team, two, four, and one. Ah, we're just getting started here, folks. The New England Patriots, up to their worst start since 2000. And I know that makes our producer, Ian Glendon, livid as john gruden would say right ian <laughs> oh you know it I, I i'm just holding back the emotion right now <laughs> they're and also being third in the division clark it, 2000 happened to be uh brady's rookie season and he didn't play he didn't he play think he threw one pass that year and uh so uh you know that's more than a coincidence uh mr judge well spoken like a true tampa brady honk and then we've got the new york jets they produced four yards and one half. Four. <laughs> oh, my God. Talk about tanking for Trevor. Anyway, let's get to the breaking news, Ira. And the breaking news right now is John Gruden. John Gruden, did you see what he said last night or yesterday? Well, I saw he said how proud he was of the Raiders after taking a thumping from the Buccaneers. He thought they, he thought they played their hearts out. I mean, what the heck does that say about the, the Raider roster? But I believe he said something else, Clark, that got your attention. He did. He did. He said the Raiders are, quote, on the cutting edge of beating the virus. Talk about COVID-19. Now, Ari, you're going to have to help me here. You know John Gruden. You've covered John Gruden. I think you probably understand John Gruden. But when it comes to talking about the virus and COVID-19, I want to hear from Dr. Fauci not Dr. Gruden. What's going on here? Gruden's a strange cat, Clark, in so many ways. I never saw the guy eat, but it looks like he gained about 30 pounds since he was in Tampa. So that's number one. Number two, I think they call it projection. Whatever you're guilty of, you throw it out there uh, the exact opposite. And that's what he did. We're on the cutting edge. And Clark, I'm going to remind you, and you haven't heard about this, 2004, two years removed from the Super Bowl, in the fifth or sixth game of the year, Gruden said, quote, the future's so bright around here, I got to wear shades. I got to wear shades. Clark, two months later, they polished off a 5-11 and 11 season. But there's your John Gruden. <laughs> so much for the uh, Ray-Ban endorsements. Um, you know, Ira, uh, quickly uh, – I, I think I looked at that as sort of the reverse of what he was saying. I thought he was being cynical and sarcastic because he reportedly was livid 
um, that he had to play last week, and I understand it after watching the results, but he thought that that game should be played Monday or Tuesday. And also, there are reports that there are going to be substantial fines and a possible loss of draft picks because of what's going on with the Raiders. What's going on with the Raiders is COVID-19, um, beginning with John Gruden not wearing the mask, getting fined $100,000 and the team 250 But I thought that was sort of a cynical and sarcastic remark. Would you read it that way? Uh, it was cynical, Clark. And I dare say, I dare say, we'll never know. Yeah. If they push that game back to Monday or Tuesday or even later in the season, and the Raiders would have lost at that time. He would have bitched saying I had them ready to go on Sunday. Yeah. So that's just the way it is. Yeah, but it's Halloween. Ira. That's what makes it weird and wacky. <laughs> Speaking of which, let's move on to Jeff Garcia. He also made news on Monday. I covered Jeff when he was in San Francisco. You covered him when he was in Tampa Bay. And he was also a yep. quarterback for Cleveland. But apparently he's a analyst now for NBC Sports Bay Area. And yesterday he went on a rant about Cam Newton, which I could understand if he was talking about his play, but he wasn't exactly. He was talking about his wardrobe. And Ian, if you've got that audio, cue it up so we can hear it. You go into this game, two touchdowns, four interceptions. You throw, what, three more interceptions? You get yanked in the second half. There's nothing good going your way. Why are you dressing like that to bring more attention to yourself? I'd be trying to ask the equipment managers, put me in your jock sock cart and sneak me in the back door and I'll show up on the field and do Wait, the best that I Jeff, can. Jeff, this sounds like you're speaking from too much experience here. Okay, this sounds you know like what? you're speaking I mean, from experience. This, this just goes back to a couple years of just watching this guy and seeing him at the podium, but yet what he's doing on the field does not translate to being that guy. Like and Joe I just Montana. feel like... I mean, uh, Joe Namath. So, uh, Ira, I want you to get out of your jock sock cart and tell me, what is that all about? Clark, There's there was a guy, I think he passed on, and Ian might not have ever heard of him, but I'll throw it out there, Clark, because you know what I'm talking about. There was a guy named Mr. Blackwell, and Mr. Blackwell was some kind of a fashion guru. And he, yeah, he lived and breathed for the Academy Awards, all the crazy outfits, and he used to slam all the women, you know, for their outfits that they're wearing. All of a sudden, I guess Garcia sees a void, and he wants to be Mr. Blackwell. Clark, here's the point. Uh, you know, and I covered Garcia in Tampa. He's a hell of a quote. He's yeah, the guy. Yeah. He's the guy when, um, you know, the Bucks were uh, courting Brett Favre in 2008 in August. Uh, he's the guy that said uh, John Gruden likes to uh, date quarterbacks. He doesn't want to marry any. Uh, he's also the guy that was walking off the practice field at that time. And, and me and Roy Cummings went up to him and he passed us by and he said, Dead man walking, gentlemen. Dead man walking. So he knew that uh, Favre comes in, he's out. So he's a good quote. But, Clark, my point is, my angle, stick to the football. And if you want to slam Cam Newton about the way he's playing, you and I have no problem. But you don't need to go beyond the football field. Oh, man, Ira. Hey, when Gruden was talking about dead man walking, was he talking about you or Roy? <laughs> it was a tandem. It was a co covered both of us. Okay, now let's move on to another weird and wacky thing last weekend. It's in the air everywhere, Ira. This NFL Network poll, and they ran one last weekend to celebrate National Tight Ends Day, which I've never heard of before, but it was last weekend, National <laughs> Tight Ends Day, where they asked viewers to vote on the greatest tight ends of all time. And the choices were, number one, Tony Gonzalez, number two, Shannon Sharp, 
Number three, Jason Witten. Number four, Antonio Gates. Number five, Rob Gronkowski. Number six, Greg Olson? Yeah, Greg Olson. And number seven, other. I don't know about you, Ira, but I think I'm voting other. I look at this list. Where is there anyone from prior to 1990? I mean, what's the deal? Clark, this is this is even a bigger problem. We face it sometimes in, in the Hall of Fame selection room where, you know, we're worried that uh, the young guys didn't see these guys play uh, even from the 80s. Forget it. Forget about the, you know, the 70s. Clark, that list tells you that they don't these people don't believe the NFL started till 1985. I mean, or 95. They're, they're yeah, 75 yards. If they thought it was 1985, Kellen Winslow would have been on here. He's not and even Ozzie on here. That's right. Um, so they're 75 years behind the times, Clark, because it started <laughs> in 1920. Uh, look, Clark, we've seen some football. There was a John Mackey. Mike Ditka was a fantastic football player. Absolutely. I believe, I believe he took the league by storm. His he first did. rookie season, um, you know, for a lousy Bears team. Nobody could stop him, and he was a good blocker. So, Clark... It's indicative, I think, of a little bit of an age gap that, um, that we face all the time. Yeah, and just sort of a sidebar here. I do remember when we were in a meeting, Ira, and it was a Hall of Fame meeting, Tony Gonzalez was up, and Dan Fouts and I were talking about Don Coriel because he was the candidate immediately before Gonzalez, and we were talking about how he revolutionized the game by putting Kellen Winslow in a position where he was actually a wide receiver, not a tight end, and they created all sorts of matchup problems. And so Winslow revolutionized the game at that point, much like, honestly, Ditka had three centuries, uh, three uh, decades before, it seemed like three centuries, three decades before. And so we finished with that. <laughs> and so now it's a Tony Gonzalez conversation. And the first guy stands up and he says, Tony Gonzalez revolutionized the tight end position. And Dan <laughs> and I looked at each other and went, forget it. <laughs> no one's listening. Apparently you know, the NFL Network wasn't. Um, Clark, we're not asking people to remember Don Hudson. I mean, we're not. We're not. Right. And Newt Rockney or Clark Shaughnessy or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, 60s, 70s, uh, I don't think that's too much to ask. Give these guys their due. There were, there were great football players uh, before the start, uh, before Al Michaels walked into a broadcast booth. Right. Let's face it. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's move on to a more serious subject, which is, NFL seating and playoff seating. Are, are, are you finished with the weird stuff, Judge? Well, are you not, finished? Maybe. It depends on where you're going next, Ira. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but with playoff seating, we've got, um, as I mentioned, the 49ers are in last in the NFC West, right? And so they're four and three. However, we got Philadelphia first in the NFC East, two, four, and one. And the NFC East is a mess. We know that. I mean, you could win that division with six wins, maybe be six, nine, and one, because I do think the Eagles will win it. This is going to bring the time-worn argument and debate about playoff seeding. Forget division leaders and all that. Let's start playoff seeding. I don't believe in it. I've talked to Tony Dungy, who's been a guest on this program before. He doesn't believe in it because he thinks there should be a reward for winning your division. I couldn't agree more. How about you, Ira? Clark, this debate heats up every four or five years when one division is lousy uniformly. Yep. Now, Clark, Ironically, the last time it happened, the NFC West was the lousy division. Right. And right. I, I think, you know, uh, seven wins. You know, Raheem Morris used to say it's a race to 10. It's a race to 10 when he got the Bucks job, uh, you know, in, uh, in 2009. And we didn't know what he was meant. And he said, well, history tells us if you get 10 wins, you know, you're going to make the playoffs. 
Well, this year, I think that magic number might be six, Clark, in the <laughs> NFC East. I'm with you. Um, I don't think the NFL has any inclination to change the rules. And I think, Clark, the first speech that every coach gives in training camp, hey, let's win our division. We're guaranteed a spot and we're guaranteed a home playoff game. I don't think that's going to change, Clark. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, and speaking of Raheem Morris, I think it's a race for 10 now, right? He's got to get 10 wins for the Falcons to get consideration for that job. Well, yeah, according, yeah, according to... Time. According to Arthur Blank, you're right. Arthur Blank, yeah. Um, Anyway, but you mentioned that about the NFC West. I do remember in 2010, everyone was up in arms because Seattle won it at 7-9. Then they host a playoff game. Oh, this is ridiculous. Who are they playing? They're they're playing the defending Super Bowl champion New Orleans Saints. They won that game. They won it. And that was the end of that argument. All right. I think I'm going back to weird and wacky, Ira, because it's, it's that time of year, Halloween. Antonio Brown. Yeah, he's in your neighborhood, Ira. You can look for him at your door on Halloween. Signed a one-year deal with a max value, as you know, of uh, $2.5 million. I mean, on the surface, it seems to make Tampa Bay stronger. I mean, this guy's, uh, what, a five-time All-Pro, All-Decade member, 2010's All-Decade member. And he caught 1,000 yards in passes for, I think, six straight years. I think maybe six straight years, yeah. Yeah, and in a hundred, and he had 100 uh, catches or more in six straight years, including a league high, 136 in 2015. Um, also led the league that year with uh, 1,800 yards catching. I guess my question here is, um, does this make the Bucks better? Is this on the surface what it could be or should be? Does this make the Bucks stronger? Clark, your, your, your Halloween motif is very apropos because this looks like a goblin coming through the front door of one buck place. Um, and it has not been uniformly accepted by buck fans. I think the timing, Clark, is very strange. Yeah. They're five and two. They've scored 83 points the last two weeks after a bad night in Chicago. Right. Brady's playing out of his mind. Now, Clark, one little asterisk, and I'll throw it out there. Mike Evans doesn't look healthy. He's, he, he's far from 100%. He's hobbled. He's still playing. So, Clark, maybe you get Brown in uh, with the start of the New Orleans game, which would be a primetime game in week nine, big rematch. Uh, and you give Evans a couple of weeks off to recover, and that's a small window for Brown to make an impact. But on the other side, Clark, I'm saying this. The strength of the Bucks is the wide receiver tandem. I think it's the yeah. best in the league yeah. when they're both out there. Right. And Clark, I don't think you could ever describe Antonio Brown, you tell me if I'm wrong, as a depth piece. If he's on your team, he wants the football. If he doesn't get the football, you got a problem. So Clark, no matter what Bruce Arian said, this was a Tom Brady, uh, you know, involvement, uh, a heavy involvement. And why now, Clark? It, I say they don't need him. They don't need him. Yeah, and I think your point's well taken, Ira, because when he didn't get the ball in Pittsburgh to his liking, Juju Smith-Schuster was there. What happened? He yep. threw a tantrum, didn't yep. play the last game. Juju Smith-Schuster got the team MVP. That apparently set off Antonio Brown. And it makes you wonder what will happen here when you've got all sorts of persons, Fournette, Brady. Um, and Gronkowski's coming around. And Gronk is coming around. That team, anyway, I, I, I think that team looks like the best team in the NFC, but I want to bring in Ian Glendon again, our, our producer, and ask him, you remember Antonio Brown with the Patriots because you're a Patriots honk, right? Yeah. 
He played one Punk's game. A good word. <laughs> yeah, he played one game, and he lasted one game. They played one game in two years, and they got him out of there largely because of stuff going on off the field. But mm-hmm. I just don't know. I agree with Ira. Why would you bring him into a team where the chemistry is just right right now? Uh, for I, I would say for that one game last season, uh, you, you're seeing what Brady looks like right now. There, there's some strange kinship between the two of them. Uh, I, I know they're both six-round, late-round picks, so maybe there's a, a bond formed over that. But, but Brady and Brown just seem to have this friendship that I, I can't necessarily explain. Mm. It doesn't seem like it would be... You know, given who Brady is and what Brown's gone through, it's like that seems kind of like an odd couple type matchup there. But for for whatever it is, they're they're enamored with each other. So so that always gives me, you know, if I'm a Bucks fan, I'm looking at this like you know, hopefully he's humbled because like you were mentioning over those six years, and I you know I've <clears throat> jumped into these numbers recently. He averaged 114 catches, over 1500 yards, and 11 touchdowns, which you know, it is you talk about Hall of Fame where that's Hall of Fame worthy numbers right there. I mean, you, you're not going to match that type of production across the board. And, you know, I do think that the the Bucks have, I mean, uh, a great receiving core. We've seen Scotty Miller start to come around to uh, Rob Gronkowski, like you said, uh, Mike Evans does seem banged up. Um, so I think maybe that could be a, a, a situation where they see maybe in the future, this might be an issue. Uh, but Antonio Brown can also return punts, and he can add a dynamic to that special teams that maybe they don't necessarily have right now. And and at this point, this we're just talking about icing on the cake because I I do think this this offense is probably the best in the NFC, perhaps maybe in the entire league. You know, now that it's starting to find its way. So, um, I, I I think I think Brady they're just enamored with each other. And you're right, this is this is Tom Brady's team. I mean, whatever Bruce Arians says, I I just yep okay whatever Bruce this is you know you're telling me Tom had nothing to do no this this yeah, had Tom right. Brady written all over it. So yeah, and that's uh, after the last week's game. Yeah. he said Tom didn't have anything to do with this. And I think Ira, if you believe that, you believe the Jets are going to the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> of course he did. Hey Clark, Clark, I have not seen a love affair like this since uh, Tom Hanks was chasing Meg Ryan in Sleepless in Seattle. Well, what's going on here? They played one freaking game together, and, and they're joined at the hip? I, I don't get it. I don't I, get I it. Don't, I don't get it either because Antonio Brown and social media slashed and burned everybody. I mean, Belichick, uh, Kraft, everyone. And, he, and then he's retiring. No, he's not retiring. Yeah, he is retiring. And he's in trouble off the field. They suspended eight games. It's one thing after another, this guy. And I thought – why would you bring this kind of headache on yourself? And remember what Arian said, I think, Ira, in the spring, was that you know, we're, gonna, we're not going to sign him because he's not a good fit, right? And now he says right. he's matured and that he believes, and I'm talking about Bruce Arians, believes in giving people second chances. Well, that wasn't said you know, months ago. So I guess my question is, following what Ian just said, who's coaching this team, Bruce Arians yeah. or Tom Brady? You know, he called him a diva, and that's appropriate, uh, Clark, in March. And here's the other point. They're so fortunate to have Evans and Godwin, great players, Clark, but they're not divas. You never hear a word from these guys if they don't get the football. Right. And here comes Mr. Brown. So, yeah. hey, it might work out, Clark. I'm, I'm not holding my breath. How do you see it playing out, Ira? Uh, I think he might return some punts, Clark, and might play a couple of games uh, with Evans hobbled uh, and, and getting a chance to rest. Uh, but I, I don't think he makes a major impact on the 
20, 20 bucks. I just don't think he does. And, and last question about the 20, 20 bucks. From what I saw last week and the last two weeks, I think they're the best team in the NFC. How about you? I, I had them at 11 and five. Uh, if they beat the Giants, Clark, which they should in the Meadowlands, they'll be six and two heading into the rematch with the Saints and right on pace to win that division. I think they're the best team in that division, Clark. And you know what? New Orleans isn't as good as you and I think thought they were at the start of the season. They're not playing good football. No, I agree with you, but I think they're more than the best team in that division. I think they're the best team in the NFC. Seattle has no defense. I mean, defense once put the Seahawks in the Super Bowl, it could keep them from being in the Super Bowl. And then you go Green Bay. We already know what happened in Green Bay. Right. Played Tampa Bay. Anyway, I think we're going to stop right there. Sounds like a good time to stop, Iron, and let you catch your breath because you got Mike Pereira coming up and you've got to get those pass interference questions just out of your head because I knew you had so much angst from last week. So here comes a goblin. Here here comes a goblin. Here Here he comes. comes. (laughs) We are, we are going to sit down with Fox rules analyst, Mike Pereira. After this message, you're listening to the eye test for two on fullpressradio.com. Welcome back to the second half of the eye test for two, where we're delighted to introduce the former VP of NFL officiating and now the NFL rules analyst for Fox TV. And that's Mike Pereira, who, by the way, Ira, also happens to have his own radio show on KNBR in San Francisco. I know because I used to live there and I listen to it all the time and I listen to Mike all the time. And Mike used to be a neighbor of ours, as you may not know, uh, in New York City when we lived there for 15 years and then he moved to California and we moved to Connecticut. And I think you see who got the better of that deal. So, Mike, you're on with Clark and Ira. Thanks for joining us. I'm not sure who got the better of the deal, yeah, to well, tell you the truth. Yeah. I mean, people are fleeing the state left and right. They don't like the politics. You know, they, they don't like the, the taxation. I mean, there's a lot of reasons not to like this uh, state, but, as I look out at the pretty blue sky and the 75 degree temperatures today. Um, you're killing me, Mike. You're killing me. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, you're killing me too, Mike. Um, Mike, I remember when you first took that job at Fox and let's face it, you were a pioneer. There hadn't been a rules analyst on TV uh, and you were so good at what you did that now there's an industry uh, of that, uh, that profession for former officials. They're everywhere on TV, everywhere, college, uh, basketball, uh, pros, everywhere. What's the hardest part of doing that job for you? Well, I, I, it, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I think maybe the hardest part is, is trying not to offend the officials. Um, I, I, part of my job is to disagree and I don't mind disagreeing but I know that pretty much every time I do, I'm going to offend somebody um, because officials, I mean, officials have egos maybe bigger than the state of Connecticut. And um, so they very seldom ever think they're wrong. And so when you do criticize them, um, they, they take offense. Now they maybe take less offense to me because I've done it and they know that I've done it and they know I realize how hard it is. Um, and maybe they'll take less offense to me than they do like a Troy Aikman who hasn't done it before and doesn't actually realize how hard it is. But I just try to be respectful when I do disagree. And, and I remember when I took the job and, and officials talked to me, I said, look, at, I'm never going to use harsh words. I'm, I'm never going to say that 
you know, oh, he blew that call. I never say, never was going to say that was a horrible call. Um, you know, those words that just pile on. And sometimes, though, I look at, at a call and say, man, that's a, to myself, I go, that's a horrible call. And then, and so how do I temper it down a bit, you know, so that, um, you know, so that I don't offend them. And so that's, that's difficult. And look at, I mean, I, I don't know if they were all my friends, but certainly my best friends are officiating friends. And, and I went to the dark side and, and I know that they consider it the dark side, you know, because I was one of those and, and I didn't like to get criticized, especially I didn't like to get criticized when I was right. And that happens a lot in the, uh, you know, in the coverage on television and radio. So I went to the dark side and I became the enemy, Clark and Ira. I mean, to the point where the, you know, their own collective bargaining agreement, the officials did not allow them to talk to me uh, because I was a member of the media. So I remember my first year I went to a, a game and I was traveling and, and I think it, I'm not, I'm not sure it may have been Tampa, Ira, um, but um, I saw a couple of the officials and they said, Hey, come on over for a cup of coffee tomorrow morning and see the guys. I said, great, love to. And then I got a call from the office that said, you're not welcome. You wow. can't go. So, so that, that to me, you know, was difficult because, you know, a lot of my friendships went by the wayside. Is that still the case, Mike? I mean, is that rule still, or that whatever that uh, still decree still in effect? Still the case, and and I remember saying to them, you know, are you going to tell Clark Judge, who happens to see you at a at a hotel restaurant, that he if he said, hey, can I have a cup of coffee? Are you going to tell him no? You're going to tell Peter King no? Um, I mean, this is insane. Plus, I mean, to be honest, I don't consider myself you know, a normal media person. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, 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 mean the, I, I try to tell the league all the time, look at your five best friends in officiating ought to be Pereira, Blandino, McCauley, Perry, and Sterator. Those of us, because we actually, we actually kind of dictate the public perception of how right. officials are doing. Because, you know, they're going to, people now are going to listen to us because we're no longer connected with the league. And so we don't have as much of the bias as uh, the league does if Walt Anderson or, or uh, you, you know, we get anybody, per Perry Fuel or Al Riveron, if they tweet out something, I mean, they're automatically considered as biased. And I remember that because I was in the same boat, you yeah. know? So, so to me, I, I never thought, that I was one of the media and, and I've always felt like the league should have a special little, uh, a little group, which includes the five of us because they could work with us and, and help us get out the right information and maybe change somewhat, change the perception of officiating. Hey, Mike, uh, Mike, through seven weeks here in 2020, my sense, Mike, is that officials uh, are not center stage as they have been in some other seasons um, up to this point. Uh, Mike, do you share that? I think the worst thing is, you know, when you are the story after a game, Mike, that's something, uh, you know, that you absolutely want to shun. And I think in that sense, it, it's been a very successful season. Yeah, Ira, I, I, 
you know, I agree with you, but I hate to say it because I'm afraid the world's going to crash this coming weekend, you know, because something's going to happen and, and then I'll jinx it by saying, yeah, I agree with you, but I do. And, and I think it's interesting because really the number of opportunities, you know, to garner criticism has gone down because the number of fouls being called has gone down. And, and I think that's good. Um, I, I've said all along, there's never been a time in history, as far as I'm concerned, that the officials were under so much pressure going into a season because they just weren't prepared. They didn't have their normal preparation. You know, you can say all you want about players don't need preseason. I get it. That's fine. But the officials do. I mean, you know, Playing is a physical exercise for the most part. Officiating has nothing to do really with physicality. It has everything to do with the mental aspect of your game. It's processing what happens on the field and then making decisions based on something that you may have one twenty-sixth of a second to see. And so those mental aspects get rusty over time. Uh, and if you have a nine-month period that you're off, and then you come back and you hop right into the regular season. I mean, I, that just hasn't happened. And, um, and, and so to me, they were really under the gun. Plus then they said, okay, you're going to wear masks. You're going to wear masks. You're going to have an electronic whistle. you got a social distance if you can near the sideline and the, all of these different things that officials have never been used to thinking about. And then 11, 11 brand new officials that had never worked a regular season NFL game and now, boom, thrust into it. So what did the league do? Um, what did Walt Anderson do? And obviously I would say Walt Anderson, but a consensus of the league. But it was to say to the officials, hey, make your foul calls clear and obvious. So make them that everybody sees them and that it's a foul. So what message, what message did, uh, did he give? Well, I, I know one thing, if I was back as a side judge in the league and somebody emphasized it like that, I mean, it's been said in other ways, including by, my, by myself and Blandino, but never so strong as to use replay terminology of, of clear and obvious. If it's me, I'm laying back. I mean, I'm laying back and, you know, there's a, there's a, pass rush and there's a there's a hold but it's not a big hold it's not really clear enough i'm going to pass on that and uh and 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 what happened is you can see the numbers have crashed the number of penalties have crashed and and it's affected today's game i mean there's no question about it the points are up way up well you you look at certain categories and you go yeah well here's why offensive holding is way down so yeah. you look at that and say well, how does that affect uh, the points? Well, there's less first and 20, second That's and right. 20, and, right. and right. all those uh, yards and you know down and distance plays, which clearly has an effect. And then you look and say, hmm, your favorite topic, Ira, defensive pass interference. It's up. It's up. Okay, there's, a, there's another category that's going to help the offense. Illegal contact. Up. Another one. Offensive pass interference crashed so there's enough so all of this ends up like affecting the game as it's played today 
Um, and I personally say, good. I mean, I don't want to see Listen, I was one of them and I'm an officiating guy, but I don't want to see penalties. I love games that have seven or eight penalties. I hate games that have 22. Um, so to me, to me, the less stops that you get in a game, the better. I mean, I'd love to get rid of some of the dang categories and in instant replay so we could have less stops in instant replay. Get them out of the judgment areas of replay, like how long is long enough to complete the process of a catch. Replay doesn't belong there, does not belong there. So uh, I think the games are played smoother. And so therefore, like as you're watching, Ira, they're not as much of the story. They're always going to have misses. I mean, that's, there's no question about that. But I think so far that um, they have not been a part of the narrative, which I think is good. Mike, one quick uh, pet peeve, Mike, just quickly. Um, and this is from me, but you sack a guy. It's third and 16. Uh, defense is working its butt off. And... Mike, defensive holding away from the play, automatic first down. I've talked to McKay about this a hundred times. I can't get a good answer. Mike, why the automatic first down? That That is a killer. It's a killer. Well, it is a killer. And, you know, if you say defensive holding away from the play, you're saying essentially it's defensive holding aware, away from where the play ends up because defensive holding is a foul that occurs before any pass is thrown. So you don't know it at so, the time, right, Mike? You don't so, know it. So right. you don't know where, where it's going to be. But then here's the deal, Ira, and here's why I like it. Um, I think if you have third and 15 and you say that it's only a five-yard penalty without an automatic first down, you're encouraging the defense to grab and you're encouraging them to hold and the, def the defenders are going to go, hey, I'm going to grab here and if I get away with it, fine. And so – uh, you know, and I, I think if you if you do take away that uh, that uh, automatic first down, then I think you're going to see a lot more of that. So, you know, play it, play it straight up. Um, I think it should be played straight up. You know, pass interference, of course, we know is really punitive, too punitive in, in my opinion. But to me, to encourage the defense to try to get away with something because the penalty is not is not enough to create a difference other than five yards would be a mistake. Hey Mike, I want to congratulate you. I think you talked to our off the ledge on this pass interference question. <laughs> he was hot and bothered coming into this conversation. <laughs> you talked him off. Um, I've got a question for you since you talked about the clear and obvious. Where is the defining moment for officiating crews? Because one man's ceiling is another man's floor. So there's no consistency here, which you might think is clear and obvious. I may not. So where does an officiating crew determine what is exactly that standard? Well, that's, of course, the million-dollar question. I mean, the, the one complaint that coaches, the, the biggest complaint that coaches always have, and everybody has, is consistency. Um, you know, but consistency, consistency really revolves around judgment when you're talking about these areas of offensive holding or pass interference, whatever it may be. And to try to get 131 guys to see everything the same in real time is impossible. It's just impossible. And quite frankly, you have some officials that are better than others. I mean, there's, there, there's, there's no 131 group that are exactly alike and have the same exact skill level and have the same exact eyesight 
has the same exact ability to process something so quickly and make a decision. So you have some officials that see more than others. And, um, and that's the nature of the beast. We had an umpire, Carl Paganelli. I mean, he used to like double, and he still is an umpire, by the way, but he used to double the amount of holding calls than anybody else. And, uh, you know, we would sit there and go, man, why is he the outlier? And we'd look at every one of his calls and we'd go, yep, that's a hold. And you look at that, yep, that's a hold. But he just saw things and still does things, although he seems to have tempered his calling a little bit, but he just saw things better. And, yeah. and, and you, can't, you, can't, you can't really legislate a consistency there. And, and to me, the, the only thing that you really wanna do is, is in terms of consistency is try to get officials to call the game the same in the first quarter as they do in the fourth quarter. And, and that's another you know, a pet peeve of coaches. If you're going to call offside in the kickoff on this play with five minutes to go in the first quarter and it's that tight, then you better call it again in the fourth quarter in the same exact situation. And that's correct. Yeah. I would yeah. agree with that. But there, there's it, it, that that's that's like a nebulous word consistency. And it's something that it will it will never be reached 100 um, percent. And so you have to you have to live with that. And again, I think that's part of the, you know, physically, maybe you can be more consistent. Mentally, it's really hard to get consistent with 130 guys. I've got one last one, Mike. If you were back in the league office and I gave you the um, flexibility or the latitude to make one rules change, you could do it. We don't have to worry about taking it in front of the owners. You can make the one rules change. What would you do? Uh, you know, Clark, I'm asked that so many times, and my my number one answer has always been um, pass interference penalty to make it a maximum 15-yard penalty because I sat through too many plays in New York where I was grading video and I was the head of the department, and I'd see a 45-yard pass interference call against the defense, and I look at it, and it's wrong. And so it becomes a 45-yard mistake. And, and then it's also, without question, the hardest call to me, the hardest call in the field to make because everybody's moving. Everybody's moving. The ball, the defender, the offensive player. Is it catchable? Is it not? You're moving. I mean, it's just – and I think so much pressure on the officials because they know it's a 40-yard penalty. So I, I would have said that. Um, but as I transition a little bit more to the fan – um, I almost hate that we brought instant replay back into the game in 99. I, 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 I really do. I think, you know, and we all know George Young, and he knew what was going to happen. I mean, in 1999, when we brought it in, he was the head of football operations, and on his instant replay manila folder, instead of on the tab writing instant replay, he wrote in big letters across the front, the monster grows. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and he's, he's right. And, you know, we're now looking to see if the ball is an inch short of the goal line right. when it's ruled a right. touchdown. And we sit there and decipher that and decipher that when no one in the world would have ever thought about stopping it to look at it. I mean, it would have gone on as a touchdown and, and, and replay. And, and so it's gone from correcting the obvious error 
to looking at an inch difference at the goal line or the line to gain. So I, I think it's, it's outgrown what its uh, intent was. And to me, I, I, I just would love to get rid of it for a year and see what it looks like. Of course, I'd be out of a job probably, <laughs> but, but I'm near the end anyway. So for the good of the game, I'd say that's something I would greatly consider. Mike, as always, thank you so much. And thank you for settling down, Ira, because he looks a lot better now than he did when you were coming on this broadcast. Just give me another shot at Ira someday. I'll get his, <laughs> I'll get his next pet peeve, you know, and I'm see putting, if I can I'm putting the Maylocks away, Mike. The Maylocks bottle's going back in the drawer. <laughs> thanks, Mike. Mike. Thanks so much. And uh, as usual, we'll look for you on TV this weekend. You got it, Clark. Thanks. Thank, thank you. Me. That was Fox NFL rules analyst, Mike Pereira. And Ira, you feeling better now? Boy, he is, he is smooth and he is smart. And that's a good combination. Yeah. Boy, hear that sound, Ira? Yes, when I, I hear that crowd, I know what's next. It's either you are somewhere memorable or Tom Brady's rock walked into this room because it's time for I Was There, Ira, and you're on this week. 17 years have passed, Clark, and I still think about this game, October 6, 2003. The defending champion, Tampa Bay Bucks, hosting the Colts, Monday Night Football, Tony Dungy's 48th birthday. Wow. And here they come. And the Colts are getting their butts beat all night long. Rondé Barber takes a pick six back. And I can just see Ian Glendon smiling. Clark, 35-14, uh, five minutes left. Tony Dungy walks towards Peyton Manning. He's going to take him out of the game, Clark. We're done. Don't get hurt. We're out of this thing. And Tom Moore, who's now a Buck assistant coach for Bruce Arians, and he was on Dungy's staff at the time, says to Dungy, Give it another couple of minutes, Tony. Don't take him out yet. The next thing you know, some guy runs the subsequent kickoff back 90 yards. The Colts get some momentum. Brian Kelly goes out of the game. He's hurt. But cornerback, he's a good player. They put in a guy named Tim Wansley. And as great as Monty Kiffin is, and if they open up the Hall of Fame for assistant coaches, Clark, he'll be in the conversation. Yeah. As great as Kiffin was, he never made an adjustment, and he told Tim Wansley to cover Marvin Harrison. And you know, Clark, Marvin Harrison, there was no mystery about where he lined up. It was always the right side. He yes, would sir. not line up on the left side. You are correct, so, sir. So he made it easy to find him, Clark, and here's Tim Wansley, and he never found him. He never found him. Uh, fourth quarter, Marvin Harrison, four catches, 103 yards. Colts come back. Somehow – they tie the game. They go into overtime. Mike Vanderjack, who had missed a field goal all year long, misses a field goal attempt. Clark in overtime. Wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute, Mister. Wait a minute, Mister Pereira. There's a flag I, on the field. Mr. I think Pereira. we've got that, Ira. I think we've got that. Ian, do you have that? Do you have that audio? Oh, 
And uh, Clark, they call Simeon Rice for leaping and landing on a teammate. Uh, I said at the time in the press box, Clark, I turned to uh, Roy Cummings, my partner, and said, Roy, they ain't made that call since 1941. And I stand by it. <laughs> and you would uh, know. <laughs> and Clark, Simeon Rice didn't block the kick. He didn't deflect it. But they called it, and they give him another shot. And he makes it. And the Bucks were two and one at the time, Clark. They end up seven and nine. They did not defend their title very well. Um, and it's a night that Tony Dungy will never forget, Clark. Uh, and I think it was the beginning of the downfall of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That game was so long that it started on Tony Dungy's birthday and ended the day after it was. But, you know, I'm sorry you didn't ask Pereira that question because it was a bad call. Simeon Rice did nothing wrong. He jumped straight up and straight down, didn't land on anybody. They gave Vanderjack another try, which bounced off, I think, the right upright, Ira? I, I believe it did. That's right. That's right. And you were there. Uh, and Ira, I was there. Any final thoughts? Any final thoughts? Any Antonio Brown? Yeah, final yeah I, got a, I got a memo. I got a shout out to uh, Bruce Arians, a little memo. Bruce, if you're listening, and you just might be listening, Clark. Just might I mean, be. This, this audience is growing every week. You know that with, uh, with Ian putting out the, uh, the word on the street. Um, Clark, here's my memo to Bruce Arians. You don't have to make excuses for your quarterback. A couple of weeks ago, everybody saw it. He lost track of downs. All right, he made a mistake. Well, don't compound it by saying, yeah, he knew it was fourth down. You don't have to alibi. And this week, Antonio Brown comes to one buck place. Tom Brady had nothing to do with this decision. Clark, in March, you said he's a diva and he doesn't fit here. So, Clark, Tom Brady doesn't need a lot of help, especially from you on the alibi scale. Hey, that's, that's my take. Oh, man, all right, going out with a bang. I love it. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week. If you're looking for us on Twitter, you can find Ira at, at iKaufman76 and me at, at ClarkJudgeTOF and Ian Glendon. Where can they find you, our producer? That would be at IGLEN31. That's right. There 31 is my age. <laughs> all right. Not I'm really. Not <laughs> anyway, that's it. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, and... Tune in next week. You'll find us right here. You've been listening to the iTest for Two on FullPressRadio.com.